0: Uh, yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Um, and thank you, TJ, for your talk and also for your persistent commitment to not giving up on the future, which is sometimes hard to do. Um, um, I like to start by saying that I'm an artist. I want to kind of always emphasize that, um, that I'm not an activist artist. I'm not a researcher artist, even though I respect anyone who is. Um, because I feel that there is like a place for just actually being an artist. And I was just reading, giving my students uh, the short text creative process by James Baldwin, where he writes that an artist is uh, his, her own test tube or her own laboratory. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more in detail and um, a little bit more from a personal uh, Perspective about my practice and my thinking that's related to the practice. And I made a video that runs in the background, so my talk focuses more on the thinking as it happens in the language. So I won't go so much into detail about the work, but I'm happy to talk about the work more in in the Q&A if there's time. And I... I decided to start uh, with the notion of animality and use the notion of animality as the optics through which to kind of connect to all these themes that also TJ has brought up, and somehow add the notion of animality alongside notions of race and gender and class in order to think about justice uh, that takes also into account interspecies relations. Um, Yes, okay, so I'll just start. The uh, second law of thermodynamics describes the increase of entropy in the universe. This process is irreversible and so entropy also acts as an arrow of time. Perhaps then loss is how we experience entropy. But even though I'm starting my talk with loss, it's good to also remember that what precedes the grief of losing something is attachment the love and care and attention forming the basis of coexistence and communality. The figure of the animal entered my work indirectly. This early one-channel video installation wasn't a conscious exploration into questions regarding animality or ecology, but rather an attempt to grasp something that deeply concerned my own lived reality. Two years earlier, I had witnessed my mother Pass away and was shaken by the experience of what felt like her sinking into nothingness during the gradual cooling down of her body. This encounter with entropy, this grief, forcefully pushed me to use any means I had available for trying to understand the ethics of living and dying together and later how our institutions and social organizations and systems of knowledge structure our living and dying together. What's important to note is that the image of the animal here is not a metaphor for human passing. Rather, the euthanized horse is a being with whom I share a fundamental relationship with the world. We both are bodies, we both ourselves, and because of these things, we both are vulnerable. The 25-minute video is edited from nine hours of recording of what's best described as a kind of wake. What's left out out of the picture, however, is the site of this wake, the grim, noisy facility where slaughterhouse leftovers and carcasses of domestic animals are brought and ground into protein powder that's fed back to farm animals. Thus, the animal doesn't enter my thinking as a radical alterity, though it does also pose a question about otherness. What's radical in the question of the animal for me is the way it forces us to think about vulnerability and ways in which beings are made into things, and things into beings, and how what is projected onto animality is entangled with the ways in which some deaths are made grievable while the deaths of some sustain the lives of others. A later version of the piece shows five different animals of unedited durations accompanied by a soundscape of a low, continuous exhaling. The name of the work, Community, is an attempt to include the people witnessing the cooling down of the animal figures as part of the landscape of the work. It also points to the fact that the death of non-human animals is the foundation of modern cultures, something we're painfully aware of, in this time of 6th mass extinction and climate collapse. Thinking of interspecies commonality and developing methods for non-human political and legal representation is then a most urgent task. How then are we to ponder interspecies commonality in the framework of Western societies? Donna Haraway famously coined the term nature cultures to capture the hybridity and interconnectedness of human and more than human life. But the core institutions of our society don't recognize such hybridity. In fact, the political community, as imagined in Western political theory, is built on rising above the state of nature. While this state of nature is imagined as a violent war zone of everybody against everybody, And as such, it also implicitly suggests that nature, or the pre-social condition, is by default predatory and acommunal. It's precisely this exclusion of the non-human realm that forms the foundation of the political community in Western imaginary. The Party of Others is a project I launched in 2011 in the wake of the parliamentary elections in Finland at the time. The political climate was suddenly saturated with the xenophobic and othering language that followed the rise of white nationalist populism, while at the same time movements for expanding the realm of the political to include more than humans and other excluded groups were gaining traction in the political landscape, the beginnings of the polarization that we see in a a very wide void today. For the project, I interviewed people who represented the interest of the more than human world in their various practices practices, and asked what would a community without exclusion look like? What could be the system of governance of such an interspecies political community? The exhibition which presents video and sound material from the interviews explores the way in which language functions as a threshold for political participation in Western thought. Only certain kind of language, the kind that has syntax and grammar, is accepted as language proper. And so most of the beings in the world are excluded from from even uttering their desire to enter the political stage. And so I asked the people I was interviewing to refer to more than human beings with the pronoun them as a way to emphasize the possessiveness of a structure that relies on talking on behalf of the other. The rhetoric of what should we do with them or what do they need is resonant to many political campaigns for inclusion, but the challenge of including nonhumans is more profound, as they are never able to join our political community unless we radically rethink its foundations. On the other hand, the project was a proposal for, based on these interviews, for a real political party that would represent radical, deep ecological views, and in that way, move the window of discourse closer, one might say closer, to the forest. As we know, modern law divides the world into two categories, that of persons, which is humans and human-made constructs, mostly, and things, which is nearly everything else, including the more than human world. Animal rights movements and movements for rights of nature attempt to develop legal tools for making the interests of more than human beings and entities even visible to law. While initiatives for the rights of nature often emerge from places with strong indigenous presence and spring from the notion of decolonization of the whole anthropocentric state apparatus and its hierarchies, Animal rights theory tends to work through a notion of inclusion of individuals to the existing framework. An interesting recent example is the work of Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlichka, who, in their book Zoopolis, propose expanding citizenship theory to non human animals. Their proposal starts from the premise of accepting the interdependence of human and non human lives and developing frameworks of rights that, like the different frameworks that regulate human to human interaction, are relationship specific. In this view, non human animals can be considered citizens, denizens, or having their own sovereign territories that need to be respected. Donaldson and Kim Lichka draw from disability studies that foreground the fact that many of us are not capable of entering the logosphere of politics, yet do have interests. Concepts such as dependent agency or assisted agency, that can also include nonverbal communication, make room for political belonging that's not reserved only for those who can voice their concerns. The underlying issue, however, is that the state and its notion of citizenship and subjecthood is already not only anthropocentric and exclusive, but that the way the figure of the human at the center of Western political theory is constructed is already entangled with animalization. Museum of non-humanity is a touring memorial museum that presents a history of the construction of the categories human and non-human in Western thought. The exhibit consists of an archive that presents evidence of the ways in which humanity has been rhetorically distinguished from non-humanity through the course of history. Thank you. The viewer can meditate on the violent history enabled by this conceptual separation in the melancholy space of the 11-screen, 70-minute exhibition, while the museum's future-looking programming brings together practitioners from the fields of social justice, environmental and animal rights struggles. Museum of Non-humanity focuses specifically on one aspect of the non-human, namely the figure of the animal as the binary opposite of the human. In order to see how the figure of the animal operates within racial capitalism, I've found it helpful to parse out different conceptualizations of animality so that we're able to work in their intersection. First, there tends to be a divide between animal rights discourses and social justice discourses. This conflict can be traced back to their ways of conceptualizing the human-animal divide as a species divide. The term speciesism, popularized by Peter Singer, is commonly used in animal rights rhetoric. Singer argues that species-based discrimination operates like any other form of discrimination, such as racism or sexism, where an arbitrary signifier is made to mark the inferiority of a group. Singer leans on the moral theory of Kant, which defines the worth of human beings based on their ability for self-reflection and autonomy. Singer argues that if we take this as a starting point, the fact that in fact many animals are autonomous and should be considered moral subjects, whereas, and this is a highly problematic claim which kind of uh, slips from speciesism to ableism, the moral worth of many humans who do not possess these qualities should be reconsidered. On the opposite side of this species barrier is then social justice struggles. See that the problem is not so much the human-animal divide, but the fact that it leaks. In other words, that some humans are being treated like animals. What follows is an unavoidable conflict where one group's rights challenge directly the other group's protection. Posthumanist post-humanist discourse then complicates this picture by noting that the figure of the human and the non-human are not, in fact, species constructs, but moral and juridical categories. Cora Diamond, for example, points out that moral categories are not created by observing differences, but by f- performative naming. Naming someone an animal constructs them as killable, while naming someone a human socially constructs them as protected. As Matthew Callarco notes, the question of the animal is, in fact, two questions. One concerns the conceptual human-animal binary, and the other are concrete relationships with the non-human species. This line of thought is premised on the assumption that since we humans are, in fact, animals, we have had to humanize ourselves by rejecting our own animality. George Agamben famously calls this process the anthropological machine, a lethal process at the core of Western thought that tries to ceaselessly and forever unsuccessfully to stabilize this distinction between humanity and its underlying animal body. Because the ideal of humanity is always already biased by culture and power relations, this cesera in the figure of the human makes it possible to strip anyone at any given time of their humanity and reduce them to the non-human foundation. For Agamben, this operation at the heart of Western thought creates the conditions of possibility for genocides and extermination camps. In this view, racism, sexism, homo-transphobia are instances of animalization. All the historic divisions generated by the anthropological machine requires the concept of animal as their reference. But the animality at play here has little, if anything, to do with the multitudes of non-human species and individuals. Rather, it's a theoretical abstraction that is already constructed through projecting onto it everything that is rejected from the racist, sexist and so on ideal of man. And so, posthumanist thought in its various forms expands this notion and argues that also other species and nature can be seen as being dehumanized through a logic that relies on an anthropocentric hierarchy. The last approach, and in my mind the most productive one, is developed by thinkers who approach the question of the animal from a decolonial perspective. The philosopher Silko argues that in order to understand human-animal relations and the logic of animalization in the contemporary moment, it's necessary to include the optics of race. Coe states that even though animal abuse as well as discrimination of humans has always existed, the emergence of race in the wake of the colonization of the Americas radically transformed also human-animal relations. What co argues is that with the invention of race as hierarchies within the in the figure of the human the animal as the binary opposite of human proper was accompanied by a new figure that of the subhuman the racialized human other this figure was placed in the cosmic order somewhere between humans and animals and so While racialization happens through animalization that's based on the assumed proximity of the so-called subhuman with the literal non-human animals um, in this great chain of being, also animals are racialized through their proximity to the so-called subhuman. So the subhuman and the animal become two faces of the binary opposite of the white supremacist uh, human proper in Western imaginary. Jay Gossett writes in re- with regards to the tendency of animal rights movements to treat the struggle for animal rights as a linear progression, uh, quote, it is as though animal is the new black, even though blackness has already been racialized through animalization, end quote. Manisha Deca notes similarly how resorting to equal human rights is not possible if the ideal of the human has already been constructed by excluding from it racialized others. Silko builds a powerful argument for what she calls black veganism as a form of resistance to all forms of animalization that are based on colonial white supremacist notions of humanity. In the light of this, it's clear that it's not possible to fight racial capitalism without fighting the logic of animalization. Humanity and animality are not species categories. Some animals are indeed white and privileged, while a widening majority of the world's populations of all species is being reduced to a disposable mass that sustains the accumulation of wealth for the few. Capitalism needs non-human, subhuman and inhuman resources. The surplus is literally extracted from someone's body. To think of the question of the animal through the optics of animalization, I think, allows for thinking of constructive forms of resistance in this intersection of race and animality. Now I just want to check that the sound channel is on. Yeah, thank you. Um, Despite Despite his investment in the logic of animalization, Agamben is not really interested in the fate of non-human animals. But perhaps the case is not that the facilities of animal agriculture are camps alongside other camps. Perhaps it's animality itself that is the site on which a camp, any camp, can be built on. And because it's a foundation, it itself remains invisible. Because it's a foundation, it itself uh, remains invisible, even when it reaches massive proportions. Carol Adams points to the fact that the animals we consume are most often female animals. It's the fate of the female animal, both human and more than human, that literally sustains capitalism with her labor. Perhaps this is one of the reasons animal agriculture is still not fully politicized. Consider the fact that a mind-blowing 41% of the land of continental USA is occupied by animal agriculture, almost half of the country. The all-American burger is in fact a colonial weapon for grabbing indigenous lands. And while the world is grieving for the 1.25 billion animals perished in the wildlife wildfires in Australia, eight billion die every year in the US alone, in a normal state of affairs. The grief over Australian wildlife grows out of a sense of unnecessary tragedy, that they died for nothing, even when we're talking about sheep and other domestic animals that were in fact raised just to be killed. But animals in animal agriculture die for profit, and so profiting from violence is one way of making killable by removing deaths from the realm of tragedy. How to make this 8 billion or the tens of billions globally also an urgency and ongoing crisis? For waiting room, we try to capture something of this simultaneous invisibility and pervasiveness of animal agriculture. The accompanying video installation is an accumulative archive of language that starts from the concepts of terror and terrorism and investigates ways, ways in which state sanctioned violence is sustained by projecting this violence back on its subjects and those who attempt to break free now. This sounds like I'm going to make a really dreaded comparison, but please um, stay with me. Hannah Arendt wrote that Adolf Eichmann was first and foremost a functionary. He didn't necessarily like what he did, even felt bad about it. but he was committed to his role of being part of the apparatus. But Arendt also writes that she observed there being a certain pleasure in his being a functionary. And perhaps this pleasure function is overlooked when forms of oppression are observed only through a lens of utilitarian interest. In his study on sadomasochism, Deleuze notes how sadism and masochism are in fact incompatible. While a masochist obviously wants a sadist, the sadist doesn't want a real masochist because, you know, what's the fun if they enjoy it? But from a psychoanalytic perspective, what drives both desires is a need to break free from the grip of the superego. The, for the sadist, this means a state of lawlessness, a kind of desadean institution without law, whereas for the masochist, this means a childlike letting go of all responsibility. Perhaps forms of oppression are entangled with this desire, where the realm of non-humanity or animality Function, functions as a way to create lacunas to, where to use Agamben's words, anything becomes possible. Not only for the sake of material gains, but for the sense of freedom itself. In, um, yeah. In conversation with Marsha Gessen, Judith Butler says of Trump, he is a sovereign, unchecked by the rule of law he represents. And many that think that is the most free and courageous kind of liberation. But it is liberation from all social obligation, a self-aggradizing sovereignty of the individual." How are we then to redirect this desire and pay more attention to the way in which we conceptualize freedom? Jay Gossett writes with reference to black liberation and and what they call animal necropolitics that, quote, as a process of becoming with, and they're following Haraway's notion of becoming with as a form of planetary relation, as a process of becoming with, abolition is the unfinished project of ending anti-black racism, racial capitalism, anti-trans, anti-queer, patriarchal policing, colonialism, animal killing and caging. Abolitionism, uh, end quote. Abolitionism in this wide sense, ties together racialization as animalization and caging as a vehicle for making race, making animal and making killable. By working through the concept of abolition, Gossett boi- points towards freedom as the ultimate goal of intersectional ecology. The notion of freedom presented here is not, however, the solipsistic, autonomous individual described in Western thought, but rather freedom to form relationships, to bond, and to build communities. In her recent work on radical nonviolence, Butler points out how our self realization happens through relations. And so when we violate another, we also violate those relations and thus also part of ourselves. The assumed autonomy, ability, and individuality of even a normative-bodied human are at best temporal condition. We're much better characterized by dependency, interdependency, and being differently abled at different times of our lives. Our existence is radically interdependent. Following Butler, when we cage beings, be it human or more than human beings, We cut them off from this most fundamental form of self-realization. We literally amputate their being. The world of climate justice then has to be a world without cages. Fuck cages. Seriously. Anna Arendt also writes how history doesn't proceed in linear cause-and-effect formation, like it seems in retrospect, but in ruptures and breaks that are unpredictable. This is true in the micro-scale of art practice as well. You work with what life brings to you. Some years ago, I faced a personal life crisis. Right after the collapse of a relationship, I was diagnosed with a serious illness. And in order to process what I was going through, I started taking photographs and posting them on a fetish site, my lover and I used to hang out. Facing a real threat to my life and experiencing the heightened fragility of my body, the imagery of the theatres of objectification and dominance started to feel more problematic, as if too much closeness to reality would shatter the distance that makes pleasure possible. I didn't make these images for an art, art audience. What motivated me instead was a raw and desperate need to express, heightened by an awareness in the face of my possible death, that everything in my subjective experience, its details and colors, memories and fears, aspirations and hopes would disappear with me. That this thing that I take for granted, that the world opens to me as something and carries significance and meaning in these particular ways, is not any external objective reality but my reality a world that i have created as a world and that would not survive my passing i bring this series up despite it being a little uncomfortable because i think it's important for our conversations to remember that there is knowledge that we can only access experientially or that the experience is what gives our thinking its fulfillment Audre Lord refers to rationality as a road. If it doesn't come from somewhere and lead to somewhere, it's useless. This somewhere is the fleshy reality of embodiment. And so underlying all ethical discourse is this deeply experiential awareness that inside this body, that's just an object amongst objects, exists an internality, that I carry a world within me that I am someone, and as someones, what we share is our worry over our bodies, which means worrying about these immensely precious worlds that we're given to guard. This condition puts us in a place where managerial approaches to ethics fall apart, because there is radical equality in that condition. Not characteristics like autonomy or rationality, but the simple fact that we, all of us, who are someones, experience life as something is what makes us vulnerable. The life of a pig on a hog farm is as precious to it as mine is to me. So to live ethically is not to blindly follow rules laid out by some utilitarian principle, you know, your grandmother on one train track and three strangers on the other, what would you do? but to accept the weight of the daunting unsolvability of the task. What radical equality of lives means is that quantitative approaches are always violent. Because ethics starts where we acknowledge that there are worlds that live inside fragile bodies and the crime of the worst acts of mass violence towards both humans and non-humans is to deny this internality, to deny that there is anything but the body and thus also to deny that there is anything ethical to consider. To live ethically is to carry the awareness of this radical equality of life, and that in spite of this, we have to make decisions, including decisions that kill. And it must be stressed here that to think of the radical equality of lives, in- including the lives of those nonhumans who are ourselves, does not mean mobilizing a racist slogan like All Life Matters. As Butler points out, the radical equality of lives is situated in a world where some lives are considered more valuable and more grievable than others. And how we think of animality reflects back to all other moral divisions. The place of struggle and resistance is always in making grievable those lives that are placed outside ethical consideration. Now I want to pause and talk a little bit about art and politics. So we usually approach art from the perspective of the tradition of aesthetics which sees art as a certain kind of doing and making in other words as form. What I as an artist have found myself struggling with is that to think of art as production of forms essentially or effectively dismisses the artist as someone who has any expertise on art practice. It's true that the artist doesn't have any special authority over the meanings their work carries. But what this notion misses is that art is not only doing and making, it's also, and I argue most importantly, a way of being. What I mean is that in the background of any making and doing of art, there's a certain openness towards the world that's necessary for the practice. Or I might say is the practice. You need to let the world in, to let it move you, to touch you, to have intimacy with the world in a way not so unlike the intimacy we experience in our interpersonal relationships. Intimacy creates a space where it becomes possible to be vulnerable and to have a more direct relationship with the world. In this, vulnerability is not a weakness, but an ability to be open and be moved by an encounter. What I argue is that this kind of relationality is already present in art practice. Art is not so much what I do and make, but rather an active relationship, an ongoing dialogue with the world. That's why work often feels like being with a friend or a lover. It soothes the, the need to connect, because it is its own kind of a connection. It's a kind of thinking together with oneself which really is thinking together with the world, letting the world think within me. This relationship cannot be reduced to the artwork, to the making and doing part. The artwork is rather a shelter that protects art as training in the practice of vulnerability. And here I appropriate um, Natasha Dillon's uh, sentence about art as training in the practice of freedom. Before any work is done, art is already an encounter. Saying this, I'm not resorting to romantic ideas of the artist as an exceptional being. What I'm pointing towards is that we all have a need to exist artistically, to be open and vulnerable in ways that art makes possible, independent of whether we create or experience art. So, instead of asking what the political task of art is, we could think of art as a need, in the same way as we think of forming deep connections as a need. Perhaps a need that's shared by other species too. The goal of the struggle is not to achieve mastery. The goal is to build a world that allows us to exist in our interdependency and openness. How might we we work towards a society in which everybody would have the safety that's necessary in order to access this relational way of being? Because Is there anything more radical in our world than unproductive, vulnerable existing? Institutions are sites of upholding fictions, social fictions that determine the destinies of bodies. Creating imaginary institutions is a way to critique existing institutions and make visible their limitations and discriminatory premises but more importantly it's a way to create alternative fictions that bypass the fictions the world is currently run by fictions of money of nations of humanity of law a memorial museum for the human animal binary or a political party for the more than human reflect back to the world and temporarily recreate the world as a place where these alternative fictions rule and so what these liminal temporal spaces can kind of hail into being, is also new kinds of subjectivities that inhabit these fictions. What kinds of humans do we need to become for another kind of a world to emerge? What kind of a world do we need to build for another kind of humanity to be born? A world where vulnerability takes the place of mastery, freedom to bond, the place of autonomy, and celebration in difference in abilities the place of ontological hierarchies. Becoming is a new installation uh, that explores this moment of becoming otherwise. It's premised on the idea that whatever is to come is already here emergent, waiting to be noticed and grown. Instead of projecting a future, we focus on the moment of transformation and the different modalities change happens through. Based on interviews with uh, 37 women, uh, transgender, nonconforming, non-conforming and non-binary people around us, whom we admire and whose practices are in one way or another cultivating seeds of a way of being that has been shadowed by the patriarchal, white supremacist, anthropocentric order, becoming asks what should be cultivated here and now for another kind of a world to emerge. It doesn't lay out a single argument, its scale and duration prevents any single idea from dominating. Instead, we think of it as a place, a place that's built on attachment and lived, lived community, and that opens up to welcome others to think and become together with the interviewees and with the landscape they inhabit i'll uh end with a short trailer or kind of like a teaser of this work in progress, and so the piece will be a th- immersive three screen video installation with the screens like on opposite sides of the space, even though here they're all compressed to uh into this one triptych and uh we don't know yet, but we assume that the duration will be over three three hours long, so it will be like a place where you can come in and ex- um encounter whoever happens to be there and stay as long as you like, but you're not supposed to. Uh, grasp the whole thing at once. Um, and the song is by the indigenous Sami, Inari Sami educator and singer Anna Morotaya, and it's about a peaceful place. How to know is is um, is, um, is engagement with the world, the physicality of the world. When I walk around, um, I touch. I touch things. I want to see what
1: they feel like. Um, I, I want to see their texture, their color. Um,
0: The only way to know is to use your senses, all that you have to d- develop them as fully as you can and then, and then touch and, and, um, and then take it in.
1: I think that some people need to claim the human. I think that's really important, and when I say people, I mean specifically like Europeans, white people. And I don't mean this as white people as a whole, but like specifically those who have benefited from the category of whiteness need to claim the human. Um, Because I think that there's something really detrimental about just throwing the human away. Um, I think that if we throw the human away, we sort of, there's there's this possibility of like um, um, reenacting the same mistakes that we we've we've already committed, um, but at the same time, where I see us going, especially when I think about myself and I think about my my people, um, or the people that I claim, or the things, or um, organism creatures that I claim as belonging in my community, I I. I guess I see us going somewhere completely different. I really see us imagining something new. What does it mean to not be sure? What does it mean to, um, what does it mean to not know what we're seeing before we even see them? Uh, What does it mean to speak before we uh, know what, language should be. If you're
0: having your holding in common, a community which is holding in common uh, something, there would be this whole process of co-producing, co caring co-carrying, uh, co-carrying of responsibility, uh, of co-governing around the commons. And then, of course, holding uh, certain principles uh, high uh, in terms of uh, equality and, and, and democracy. Thank you.